Okay, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, I've got the great pleasure of introducing Ian Corza, who's um, entered his script, The Juice, into uh, Fusion for London. Congratulations, Ian. I'm going to read the synopsis, if you don't mind, Ian, and then you can you can take us. <laughs> so um, this here, a, a brief synopsis. Three disparate groups of British and Irish career criminals face a race against the clock to capture the, and kill The Juice. With a three million bounty on his head, the former mob lawyer makes a fateful decision to hide out in the hills and, and valleys of Wales. So <laughs> over to you. <laughs> of that, but yeah, um, as I say, welcome. Um, and thanks, you, Dave. No, you, you, lovely to talk to you, and you can elaborate on that. So, um, yeah, that what's what's the juice with the juice then, Ian? Well, it's a it's a dark crime comedy. Is the best way to put it. And what I was thinking of doing was a heist movie um and it is a heist movie with a bit of a twist the heist being that it's not a bank job or it's not a jewel that needs to be stolen but it's a hit on a man that needs to be killed and to be honest deserves to be killed so w- the th- the three competing groups of criminals we've got irish oc we've got uh the two most successful hitmen in english history and our protagonist is basically a petty criminal yeah. a nice lad a bit of a scallywag from the east end who has fallen into the position of unfortunately stealing something he shouldn't have stole from a very dangerous gangster in the East End. So when the word goes out that this this guy, the Juice, is hiding out in Snowdonia, it's effectively a ticking clock scenario where a $3 million bounty is on his head, dead. Not dead or alive, just dead. Mm. And so the, these three disparate groups of people descend on Snowdonia to find him and kill him. Um, and where, where it becomes interesting, of course, is that our protagonist, the scallywag, Jimmy, he doesn't want to kill anybody. The last thing he wants to do is kill anybody. But if he doesn't do it, him and his family are dead. And so what that turns into is a, what I hope is a fast-paced, thrilling and darkly comic Act three, where it's uh, we turn Snowdonia into the Wild West. Yeah, well, it kind of, uh, if you forgive me for saying this, sort of Guy Ritchie esque, I feel, um, which is not a bad. Yeah. Um, no, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm more than flattered by that. Thank you, mate. Um, now, I'm definitely, definitely influenced by Guy Ritchie, Martin McDonough as well. Martin McDonough's in Bruges yeah. has oh, had a big a impact on me. What a oh, film that is, you know. Um, and of course, that's dealing with hitmen, dealing with. Uh, everyday problems that ev- everybody deals with, the same problems and anxieties that we all have. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some Richie, definitely some Madonna, and definitely some Tarantino, I think. Tarantino's dark humour comes in at the end. Um, it's not as bloody as what he would do it, but I'm hoping that it's, um, you know, it, as a feature, it would, it would genuinely tickle ribs as opposed to it be a violent, sort of ending it's kind of a, a comic violence if you like towards the end no i no i totally understand what you mean and it's if, if we you know we're picking up with something like in bruges as an example because funny enough i'm not a huge tarantino fan um which is probably going against the grain but I'm, a couple of his films I, I do like but um it's i don't know it's I, for me, I can take him or leave him. There's, there's, and I have deliberately haven't seen a few of his films. Hateful Eight, I just couldn't be arsed with. But um, the, uh, In the way I've looked at it is, I, I imagine Tarantino, and I don't know this, but I imagine Tarantino has in some way influenced Richie and Madonna. 
therefore that I, I've, that's why I popped him in there. Cause when you watch uh, early Guy Ritchie, I can see a Reservoir Dogs influence yeah, yeah, it's okay. there. Yeah. So, so, so I imagined, but with this, I wouldn't want anybody reading the script out going, Oh, this is a Tarantino script. It, it really isn't. But the, the, I, there is the influence there through the British and Irish writers of Richie and McDonough, I think. I think yeah, that's probably the fairest way to put it. No, it's a good point. I think um, with something, uh, with actually more Guy, uh, Guy Ritchie and, and the In Bruges film, it, it is darkly comic, but what I particularly like about those, though both well, his films in general um, and In Bruges is, the, the nuances of things that happen. For instance, we, one of the hitmen loves architecture. Another one thinks Bruges is the most yeah. place in, in the world. Yeah. And that twist with the, the accident and killing of the child and, and the, I think there's, yeah. a, and where everyone knows, I don't need to elaborate about that. And you get that obviously often with Guy Ritchie films, there's something twisty going on in the background. Um, and I liked that. And that's what your script, like I say, uh, reminded me of more towards sort of the Guy Ritchie side. And I think, I don't want to say it's uniquely British, because that would be bullshit. Although I do wonder that we seem to have this have this fascination with dark gallows humour, I think, you know. I think, yeah, yeah, I think gallows humour is, I, I'd say British and Irish. There's yeah. something about this strange collection of islands in the North Atlantic where gallows humour does seem to pervade society more than, certainly in America. I mean, you go to America, um, they they don't generally pick up on our dark humor they don't appreciate it or they don't see it as a joke sort of thing yeah. um whereas whereas britain and ireland to me do seem to have a unique way to be able to laugh at things that you shouldn't necessarily be laughing at no i, I totally agree with that and i know uh, we we spoke briefly before because I, I remember you saying you lived in the u.s for a few months or half a year i think it was but so you did live, I know you haven't lived there, you know, for a long time. No, yeah. A time to get a really good feel for what, what happened. I mean, I've been to the US a number of times and I love it, but it's interesting you say that and, and particularly that you lived there and um, those kind of, does that, I don't say, does it influence you, but was there a lifestyle there that kind of influenced anything you do with your writing? I mean, how does it kind of work? Well, I think I'm more influenced by American film anyway. Um, this, this, what's interesting about the juice for everything that I've written, whether it's, uh, the novels or the screenplays is this is the first uniquely British thing that I've written. So everything else mm. has definitely more of an American influence. I, I mean, I've written, uh, two Westerns, for instance. So you don't get more American in culture than, than the Western. Um, and I think you can deal with the same themes that, that the juice throws up but in american if you're writing it for an american audience it can't be in the comedy genre does that make sense yeah, it has no. to be more dramatic so you have to take the serious themes more seriously for for the american audience and what i'm not talking about american people going to the cinema i'm talking about american audience being american producers american yeah. studios yeah. um so i think they they wouldn't necessarily appreciate dark themes being dealt with in a humorous way so where i've i've written quite a lot of sci-fi some gritty sci-fi um dealing with heavy themes and with that it's far more dramatic and there's no humor involved in it um but occasionally the problem is this occasionally i've wanted to put in a joke right mm -hmm. and i've written the joke 
and somebody's looked at it and gone, how can you joke about that? Mm. It's a joke about suicide in the middle of a serious script. And you're like, well, that's, and it's just the, 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 the Englishness in me. That's, that's the sort of one liner that would come out, you know, anywhere. Yeah. That we would say. And so what I started to do was write those on a separate list of these, these one line jokes and take them out of those, those serious scripts. And, and, and then you've, you've got, you end up with this pile of jokes that you can't use. So that's partly why I thought, uh, I think I've talked to you before, Steve, about the fact that Juice wasn't ever meant to be a serious project. It was more of just a break from, it was a break from writing gritty drama um, to create this thing and, and to, to be like a writing vacation and just have fun with it. And that's where I put all those gritty one-liners in there, you know. Um, I think the first thing I wrote for the juice was, was, uh, the, the opening of the film is, uh, is our protagonist is, is found sort of tied up and hooded in the basement of this gangster's pub and he's in deep trouble. And the gangster walks down the stairs, looks at him and, and, and doesn't know why he's hooded. So he turns to his heavy and he says, you know, Errol, why is he wearing a hood? She'll find him like that, you know, and that sort of, gallows humor yeah i'm going to take a black decker to this bloke's knees but we're going to have fun with it uh you don't get that in american gang culture and probably quite rightly you know <laughs> but there but there is that 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 hint of gallows humor in gang culture in britain there's no so ways about it there's that and so i, I had all these one-liners and threw them all in and just had fun with it and, and by pure accident really came upon a a story, a narrative that, that I think is unique and it works as a ticking clock scenario. And so I, I put it on a shelf for a few months, came back to it, reread it and, and then sent it out to a few industry pros or friends of mine to say, look, is there something here? And, and they all came back really positive on it. And so that's when I rewrote it purely as a, uh, a British and Irish a script and then trying to keep it as, as cheap as possible to make, to be honest, you know, cut out the special effects and all of that to try and, because, because you do have to worry about budget so much more if you're talking about a British film than if you're writing a film to try and sell in the spec market in California. Um, budget is so important. So just trying to, trying to keep the cost of this down and make it a viable, a viable exercise and a worthwhile film to make and see. Touch yeah. wood. So with, with that, Ian, let's imagine, well, not imagine, this is as an example, we've used the juice as an example. Um, you come up with, we've come up with an idea, a, 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 a kernel of an idea, and, you, and you're suddenly you're thinking, oh, listen, this is a decent idea, this, oh, I could develop this. But then what's the process going from that to the, to the, the finished? Are you, do you lock yourself away in a dark and real? I know we talk about, obviously you live in a, kind of middle of nowhere, which must be conducive to your writing. But, I mean, what do you do? Do you, like, put do not disturb on the door? Do you write 10 pages a night? Or, I mean, did you have a routine? Well, um, I, I kind of work on California time. So I stay up till 2 a.m. in Britain, you GMT every night. Um, uh, it's, and just work on California time. And it's that period sort of after 10 p.m. when the phone stops ringing, the emails start pinging in, the dog's asleep. The house is quiet. It's dark outside. And I find that period, those 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is where I'm at my most creative and, and you tend not to be disturbed as well, just because of the timing. Um, and yeah, I will, 
I will just lock myself in until it's done, uh, especially on first draft. Um, I found that sometimes I can't type as quick as my brain is going. So it's, mm. it's, it's, it's not, and it's not genius what's coming out, mate. I'm torn shit. It's really rough first draft rubbish, but it's about getting every idea down before I forget it. And then Typing out. And there, yeah, and then you go back and you rewrite it again once it's all there and you know, oh, I'm not going to forget something. So I think I wrote the first draft of this was about 160 pages and I wrote it in 10 days, believe it or not. Um, and then it takes a year to take that 160 to get it into 90 and rewrite it and rewrite it till it's good. Um, so, but to me, it's a really, it's a real fast kind of vomit ideas up as fast as they come to you. Um, but that process is really, really enjoyable, Steve, because what, what comes before that usually is two or three months of coming up with an idea. And that's the frustrating part of, right, what, it, there's plenty of ideas that come to you, but the diaphragm idea would make a great movie. Or more to the point, I think now we're, we're in 2021, I can't tell you the amount of times I've had a great idea and then thought, no, that's just Rio Bravo in space. You know, as so many ideas have been done. You know, you don't want to do Rio Bravo in space. Rio Bravo is perfect. Leave Rio Bravo alone. So that idea went away. So you got to find another one. So finding something relatively unique or t- to go at something from a new angle is the hard bit. And then when you get it, the fun bit is getting it out there as quickly as it can. Um, and I've never really suffered with a block as such. There's been one or two times where I've got 30 pages in. I'm at the end of Act 1. And I don't know where to take it. And all that means is I haven't outlined properly and, or it might not work. This idea might not be the, the, the best way, the best route to go down. And my biggest piece of advice for any new writer is, um, I'm asked this occasionally is don't be afraid to do select all delete. I think when you first dine off, I had this problem on my, f- I, I spent nine years returning to a script sporadically to get it right until it, until I realise, no, it's just not going to work, you know. But there's a stubbornness of I like this character and I like this this setup, so I have to make it work. And so nine years, I'm still coming back and going, let's have another go, let's have another go, until uh, you got to release some of the stubbornness and go, you know what, it doesn't work. Go move on to something else. Really um, hear you tell these stories because I hear them and I love hearing these stories, particularly from writers. There's a two two guys I spoke to, I've spoken to them a couple of times and they've done this, they've done this film called That's Opportunity Knocking. It was a short comedy and they've actually entered two scripts into our festival and a, a music video, Chuck and Stephen. And they told me this story that stuck with me and I, que- and I queried this with them. And they said, no, we, we can remember you telling that, Stephen. That, that is true. And this was a story. They take a pen and paper from everywhere. Wherever they go, they've got pen and paper. And they said the amount of zingers and one-liners they've picked up. They said, they gave me an example. They said, I was going for an airport. I can't remember what the line was, but when they told me, I thought, what a brilliant line. He said, yeah, I was queuing up to baggage check, and this woman in front of us came out of this line, and they said, it was fucking genius. And he said, there I was, and he said, that is in there, and then we will use that line one day. And I thought, that is such a good, how many times have I been out? It happens to everyone. You're out, I don't know, you might be queuing up for something, getting some petrol, I don't know, smoking a fag. Someone comes out and comes out with a brilliant line. Oh, that is brilliant. But you forget it, don't you? Yeah, you do. Uh, and it's a brilliant way to do it. I've still got one I haven't been able to get in anywhere. It's a true story. It's a few years ago, I was in, went to Vegas with my wife and we're checking in 
and the Vegas check-ins, they have like 40 desks. It's not like any cells anywhere else. Um, so there's 40 people checking in, ma- massive long queue. And we're in front of me in the queue. And I'm not going to do the accent because I can't do it, but there are two scousers. I can't do a Liverpool accent so in my life, so I'm not going to try. But they go to check-in in a pro- proper, thick, strong scouse accents. And the American girl behind checking desk, no clue. They could have been speaking Latin. Yeah. Uh, and they, and you know what? Scousers have got the best sense of humor in the world. Yeah. And she said, and, I, and I've, I'm going to use this in a script somewhere, but I haven't worked out yet where yet. She said to them, I'm sorry, do you guys speak English? At which point they look at her and go, we are fucking English, you cheeky bitch. You know, in that Scouse accent. And everybody creased, everybody behind the, the uh, check-in desk, everybody in the queue, because that accent is so funny. And to an American, and then they went on a whole tirade about this is our language. You know, we're just lending it to you. You could learn it properly, you know, um, which is great coming from a couple of scousers. But yeah, it's so true. You, you hear things, um, all the time. And I'm not far from Birmingham where I am now. And there's something about the brumming sense of humor. Whenever I'm yeah, in yeah. Birmingham, obviously pre pandemic, when you could yeah. go around Birmingham, you'd, you'd hear a one liner. And I don't know if it's in that accent. That my, and that's that's the that's the other thing that it's boring to most people, but fascinating to me. Is something? Yeah, it's a. Is it funny because it's in that accent? So if it was a black country accent, is it funnier than if it was a Geordie accent? And why? And what is it that a Geordie could say that wouldn't be funny in a Brummy accent and what have you? Um, and I played with that a lot in the juice because I've got proper. Cockneys repping the arse out of the East End accent. We've got Dublin Irish as well, because the Irish are hilarious. And we've got it set in Wales, so we've also got the Welsh accent and the Welsh delivery. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that, playing with the, um, the, the, the you know, the Englishman, Welshman, Irishman sort of side of it and the different ways they view each other as nations. It's not politically correct, as you know, you know, you'll have read it. There's, there's no PC jokes in there, but. There wouldn't be. It's honest to the characters that they are. They're they're all criminals. You know? no, you're going to get them started on the whole woke culture in a minute. Because the thing is, I am left leaning, but some, you know, I hear some of these stories and I'm like, oh my god, now what kind of world are we living in now? Because it's just gone so far. Sometimes, you know, some of it I don't believe, but some of it when I hear it, I'm like, this just because it for me, I have no problem with people having rights and and you've got to be be decent with each other, but it gets to a point where it can stifle creativity. And that's what I worry about, you know? Yeah, you don't want it pervading into, into the art of, of creativity. Um, I, I feel there's a... I've got a couple of friends with stand-ups and they seem to have a bigger problem as a stand-up comedian I yeah, I than I do as a screenwriter because there's an... Ex- it's accepted. I think it's accepted more as a screenwriter or an actor or a director that this is fiction, that you're playing a character and it's fiction. Therefore, this character has to be true to themselves. Um, and will say on PC things. I think that, I think that's still safe and hopefully it will continue to stay safe. But what I've heard is stand up comedians oh, go up on stage yeah. as themselves, yeah. you know, and the, their argument would be it's a joke, you know. It, you're here to be entertained. You've come here to be entertained by me, by cracking jokes. But I, th- I think there's, they're struggling to disconnect because it's, I don't want to use a stand-up's name because I don't want to get anybody to stand-up into trouble, but it's John Smith, the stand-up, appearing as John Smith. 
I think that might be why they're having more of a problem than, say, Colin Farrell playing a part in The Gentleman or playing a part in, in Bruges. Yeah. You know, so Colin Farrell's characters in those two films are highly politically incorrect and say yeah. some horrific <laughs> things that you wouldn't say in real life. That's right. But, yeah. but, but it's accepted. That's not Colin saying that. That's right. his character. Whereas if Colin was on stand, doing stand-up as Colin himself, oh, he'd be, yeah, yeah, there would be. Um, but I, so I, I feel for the comedians in that sense because they're having to fight back against that and say, no, this, look, this is, this is a joke. Uh, I'm glad, let's just put it this way. I'm glad that that's not what I do because I think that must be a really tricky line to, to walk, yeah. to be honest. But I haven't, as a, I haven't noticed it seep into screenwriting or filmmaking. And I, I hope that that is still a protected area. Um, because the truth of the matter is that, that it has a natural, the, the, the industry will, will, is kind of, uh, policing is the wrong word, but it's policed as in if your film is offensive unnecessarily. If, you, if what you create is unnecessarily offensive or gratuitously violent or gratuitously whatever, and there's no sense to it, nobody will go and see it and that film will lose money and therefore it will never work, you know? So there's that natural sort of, um, I don't know, I don't know what you would call it, like a, a, a capitalistic veneer of protection for the industry that if you are going to create something that's just deliberately wrong, deliberately offensive nobody's going to go and see it anyway and all you're going to do is lose money and whoever backs that film is going to lose money um and so hopefully it should never be an issue that it needs policing within the industry and hopefully that acceptance that these that this is fiction this is the is creativity creativity can't be squashed you know um i it just it, i know where you're coming from though because it's scary because I, I did my degree in history so and a lot of it, 20th century history. So um, Stalin and Hitler, you know, the, the far, far left, far, far right. But they had a lot of things in common, and one of them was censorship. Yeah. And and that's where you start to worry. Uh, I think that's what you're getting at, is, is when censorship becomes to the point where free speech is dead, then we've, we're going down a dangerous path. We are. We are. And I think we talked about this, you know, that the, you've got these extreme lefts and extreme rights, and actually... the both sides would hate me to, for saying this, but there are elements where they cross over, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and that is with elements of, of, of censorship. I mean, a classic one is burning books, for instance, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and this seeps into the whole cancel culture, which I'm really not a fan of. There's lots of people that I never want to hear talk because I can't bear them. I won't name them. But, and I don't, I don't want to go and listen to them, but I choose not to go and listen to them. And it doesn't mean that they, I think they should be cancelled. I think if you want to have these extreme points of view um, and, and give them a platform, but the way you deal with them is you ask some questions that are going to be very difficult to answer because I think yeah. cancel culture, you're on a slip. And, and believe me, I don't want to listen to these people, but you're on a slippery slope when you start to cancel them, you know, and I think where does that end? Um, and they have extreme views that I will never, ever support. But then you can't, I think it's very difficult, in my opinion, to, to, to disavow them that way. Because I think once you go down that road, where does it end? My fear is that driving them underground is, 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 is counterintuitive, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd far rather we all just took the piss at them. 
Yeah, I think exactly. taking the piss out of that is is a more powerful statement. Making them feel two inches tall and yeah. really ripping them is is the way that it's generally been done in the past. Um, but you do fear that you know it, it, it's for everybody to decide. You know, um, I was I was having a chat with somebody the other day about Cosby. Oh, Bill, yeah. yeah. Massive. Yes. Massive. Yeah, massive. And how, how influential Cosby was as a stand-up to so many American stand-ups that came after him. And it's, it's not so much whether you cancel him now, it's whether you, uh, can you go back and watch the Cosby show? Can you go back and enjoy that st- Now, I personally can't. For me, that's, I mean, that's him. record. I mean, that, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so but at least then it's a personal choice, I guess. Whereas I've spoken to people who, you know, I spoke to a guy who Cosby was everything to him, and he's he's disgusted with him, absolutely disgusted with him, and he's done with him. But he said, "I can still enjoy Cosby's comedy, though," which to me is like, "What? I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you separate it." No, I couldn't. I couldn't. But But that's like you. That's a personal decision. I couldn't because it would make yeah. Uh, And you know, I totally, I totally agree with you. I think once. Once, I mean, a, a simple, a simple way to do it is like flat Earth denialists. In my opinion, they're, they're raving, they're bonkers. You know, you can't yeah. buy four or five hundred years of rock solid proof that the Earth is a sphere. You know, and, and so, on. but and they're idiots. That I think they're idiots. But all you need to do is argue with them. You know, get some very bright people to to ask them simple questions and see how they argue the way because they're going to be shot down in flames, aren't they? Right? You know. Yeah, yeah. But that's a simple. I mean, that's a simple example. And to me, maybe it's just the way my mind works, but that's the easiest way to do it. I mean, haven't we just recently had a vice president that said well, fossils were fake? <laughs> but to me, rather than make me angry, when I hear that, well, no, fossils are fake, you know, that just makes me laugh. You just laugh at him, point and laugh, and you, you stupid man. You know, so ra- rather than – th- and that's why I say take the piss out of them, because – that to me is far more damning really i guess that's far more damaging and i remember when i was growing up as a kid and looking at who i who i liked and who i was influenced by and it tends to be people who are brave enough to take the piss out of things that wasn't normal to take the piss out of so i as a stand-up i love billy Connolly, and when i was watching billy Connolly's stuff taking on the catholic church as a glaswegian and he was you know and and he made it really funny uh, and it, but it was brave as well. It was brave humour because he is a Glaswegian, um, taking on the Catholic Church. He's a Catholic. And I just thought, and doing it, he did, he did it in Belfast, you know, as well in the seventies and eighties. And you're thinking, I love the bravery of it. And it's so much more powerful. I don't want to sound all, you know, lefty, but it's so much more powerful than a bullet to get an auditorium with 3000 people laughing their ass off at the ridiculousness of this institution whatever that institution be whether it be religious or political or terror whatever it is to actually have and i i really admire that kind of talent you know he did a he did a bit in belfast about bin laden before bin laden was caught you know um and he opened the bit by saying he said i'm going to talk about bin laden right now it's because 
let's be honest, we're in Belfast and we don't mind a bit of terror in Belfast. <laughs> and you're like, I know, and he's in Belfast while so he's saying this. But the audience loved it. They laughed it up, you know, because it's, it's Billy Connolly. And yeah, we know what we're going to get with Billy Connolly. And he's going to tell it how it is, God bless him. And he's going to make us laugh at the, t- at the same time. So, and I've always felt that that, that is the way. Yeah. That is the most effective way for the creative industry to go after these targets because they do make themselves ridiculous. You know, the last president of the US, there's so much, I honestly believe, you know, Saturday Night Live, they don't have to worry about coming up with satire, do they? Yeah. For four years, they didn't have to worry about what we're going to write. Well, just let's listen to what he said or tweeted and we'll go off that. <laughs> you know, you know, part of me wonders if the Tina Fey's and the Law Michaels world actually find him to be an absolute gift from heaven. Well, of course it is. It's a gift that doesn't stop giving him. And yeah. Of course, we don't have to get these effing ridiculous tweets every day. I mean, it is so nice. Not even that stress of waking up thinking, what's that idiot tweeted now, you know? Yeah, it's a good, he's a good, he's a good reason not to go on social media, wasn't he? Um, you know, it's a, it's a good advert not to be on on these channels but um i feel that that as i say that's that's the way to get them is to go after them with humor totally agree ian it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and you steve um and uh genuinely i could chat to you all day and, and i just want to thank you again for your time your brilliant script and taking the time to to have a chat with me it was really really good fun thanks so much steve really enjoyed it mate really appreciate it you too and you take care and you take care bye-bye 